Bonjour, dear listeners, and welcome to Defence, the conversation about defence you never knew you always wanted to have. I'm Dr. Alex Valenti, and today I'd like to invite you all to take a journey with me through time as we start this new series on the role of women in World War II. And what better way to inaugurate this adventure than by exploring a most unlikely contributor, Austrian-born actress Hedy Lamarr, and discuss her groundbreaking contribution to electronic warfare with none other than esteemed colleague and electronic warfare expert, Dr. Thomas Withington. Hi, Tom. Good afternoon, Alex. Real pleasure to be back with you chatting again after our um, rendezvous a couple of weeks back for your inaugural podcast, which is very exciting. So delighted to be back and looking forward to talking a little bit today about Hedy Lamarr. Yeah, it's great to have you back, Tom. And uh, well, no beer and no bar for us today, but I'm sure we'll make up for it somewhere down the line. <laughs> uh, well, I'm I'm on I'm on a particularly strong bottle of mineral water at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, but you've you've been now, Alex. You've been up to some interesting things since we last spoke because you were telling me earlier you visited the cinema museum in Paris. And learn something about the subject of our conversation today. Yes, that is correct. Um, well, basically, it was um, a few weeks ago, a few months ago. I can't remember. A time just sort of dissipates at the moment. But uh, I, uh, I went to visit the Cinema Museum in Paris because they had an exhibition on spies in the cinema in movies. And it was fascinating exhibition because they were showing me all the movies that had spies in it, so obviously James Bond and uh, OSS 117 for the French as well. And um, they were showing also all the little gadgets that were used and um, some that were actually used in real life for spycraft and others that, of course, like Q and James Bond are a little bit more out there. But um, aside from that, what I thought was fascinating is... Um, also seeing the role of women in these spy movies. And yeah, I came across Hedy Lamarr and I have to say, I had obviously she, you know, she was an actress in the in the 30s, 20s, 30s. So I don't, it, those are not movies I usually watch. So I didn't really know about her, but uh, reading her story was absolutely fascinating. And and it made me think, you know, um, when we talk about the role of women in World War II, what often comes out, you know, is the fact that men were out fighting, you know, the good fight and uh, the women took the jobs of the men while they were away. And when they came back, they went back home and they went back to being moms and, and wives and, and, and housewives. And I think exploring the role that they actually had in defense is something very fascinating that hasn't been done too much, don't you think? Yeah, it's been much overlooked. I mean, when you were mentioning about Hedy Lamarr, it reminded me of, I think it was either last year or the year before, that um, Josephine Baker got her long overdue recognition for the work that she'd done during the Second World War, um, helping the Allies, working in espionage whilst being obviously a famous performer um, and I, 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 to my chagrin, I can't, rem I can't remember the exact context of the uh, accolade that she got, but there was a, there was um, a lot of interest and and a renaissance of her story, really. Um, and I think it's crucially important. I mean, in in the UK's case, there was the 
example of a lot of women who work for the special operations executive, both yep. within the UK and then also behind enemy lines during World War II. It, considerable risk would be an understatement with what they faced and and many of them paid the ultimate price for that yeah. but you're absolutely right i mean i think it's really good to be moving the narrative away from the sort of munition factory stories important as those stories are but i think um to understand and to learn more about the role that women play behind the front line in considerable danger is long overdue. And I think one of the things I hope with this is that not only does it, it put the record, historical record straight to an mm-hmm. extent, but also that encourages young women that, that this is the kind of thing um, that they can be involved with or that they can, they can get into the defense and the intelligence world and that kind of thing and, and play just as important a role as any of their male counterparts would do. So it's good to be having this conversation. Yeah, and I think you're totally right when you say, you know, hopefully this encourages also uh, young women. And I guess that's also why Hedy Lamar's story really appealed to me because she would be the poster child, you know, for this kind of um, desire to, to bring more women in defense, more women in engineering positions that can help the defense sector because... Well, you know, I mean, just to give a little background story to our to our audience here, I mean, Hedy Lamarr uh, was born in Vienna in 1914. And the story has it that at the age of five, she was already disassembling music, music boxes and little machines at home with the help of her father, who was encouraging this. And and she she was fascinated by this, you know, the intricacy of the machines and, and how to assemble them back together and um and and apparently that really gave her a taste for um for being an inventor you know for coming up with the with, with new things for doing different things with the with all these little bits and pieces and um her whole story really is just a series of random events that led to her pursuing a passion and using what she'd learned along the way. You know, she she married uh, Fritz Mandel in 1933 and uh, he was um, an arms dealer and he was actually known at the time for having affiliations to the Nazi party. Um, in fact, apparently she also, she had to play housewife again, here we are again, uh, to, his, uh, to his dinner parties and she used to listen to them talk about, you know, arms, ammunition, issues with ammunition. And, you know, unbeknownst to them, she was listening to all of it and and putting that somewhere at the back of her head. And when she, you know, emigrated to the US and started working as an actress, because that was one of her dreams as well, uh, in 1937, she, um, she started working on sets and she met with Howard Hughes, who was a big fan, allegedly also one of her many lovers, and, um, and was attracted as much by her beauty than by her brain and gifted her a sort of um, a, a small set of equipment that she could play with on set during takes, you know, to come up with any invention she wanted to while she was taking breaks from doing movies. So I think it's, yeah, um, I, I like the idea that she, she wasn't just beautiful and she wasn't just dreaming of being an actress, but she was also dreaming of being an inventor. And and so she did. 
I think in many ways her story is almost like a spy film, isn't it? It's almost yeah. like a sort of spy um, novel because here she is. She's one of the, if not the most famous actress in the world in the 1930s. She's mm-hmm. termed the world's most beautiful woman at that point. She manages to get out of Austria in exactly the right time just yeah. before things start to really, really turn south. Yeah. And uh, as I understand it, she gets to Paris initially and she sort of escapes to Paris disguised as her maid, which yeah. is again like something like the intrigue of this is really quite interesting. Yeah. And then I, I, you know, she gets to London and then eventually she gets to the United States and, yeah. and that's really where things start to change for her hugely. I mean, the story you have about Howard Hughes is fascinating because um, one of her films, White Cargo, um, which she made in the early 1940s, um, she yet again found herself typecast, if you like, as as this sort of seductress, this kind of femme fatale, which, which were the roles that she was getting a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and understandably for a woman of her talents, she was finding this quite boring and quite dull. Yeah. Um, and and I, I think almost certainly her artistic, as, as a bigger fan as I am of her movies, um, I think, you know, in many ways, her, her, her deeper acting talent was probably never exploited as much as it should have been. Mm-hmm. And one of the things apparently she did when she was on the set of White Cargo was she, she, she would um, think about inventing and she would um, come up with ideas and, and all of this kind of thing as much to relieve the boredom of where she found herself uh, uh, as well as stimulating her mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's interesting that she, I mean, she was... She was also quite a rule breaker in in other ways. I mean, in the nineteen in nineteen thirty three, she was in a film called Ecstasy, correct, which she got in a lot of trouble for. I yes. mean, this was seen as you know she was seen as sort of being overtly sexualized in that film, and for the nineteen thirties, that was considered like, extremely shocking. Yeah. And she, in a way, she almost sort of underwent a kind of cancel culture. You know, she was she was um, uh, she. It, the film had a, a fair degree of controversy and, and a lot of that was directed at her. Yeah. So her story is absolutely fascinating because, and then the friendship, as you say, the friendship with Howard Hughes, who was a visionary as well, you know, mm-hmm. who's, who's clearly quite a, an interesting individual. Yeah. Um, and as you dig into it, it just gets more and more intriguing. Yeah. Yeah. Because I was reading as, you know, I was, I was digging into it as well. And, um, and I was reading about this friendship with Howard Hugh, actually, who was also like a pioneer in the in the in the field of, of planes, of airplanes and setting records. And story has it again that she, you know, they were walking around um, and he was telling her about some of the limitations uh, of the planes, the speeds, the heights and things like this. And. And apparently she went home and she, you know, she got books about birds. She got books about fish. And she also started thinking about um, what do they call it again? When you're mimicking nature, you know, to to come up with new ideas for hydrodynamics and, and, and dynamics and things like this. So she looked at how to optimize the design of airplane wings um, to be able to to be more you know dynamic and be able to be faster and more efficient. So she was also groundbreaking in a way in terms of you know mimicking nature to to improve inventions in the in the twenty twentieth century. She was a true polymath, wasn't she? Really, yeah. I think in in that regard. And then she has this friendship. She strikes up this friendship with this American avant garde composer uh, George Antale. I Correct. think I'm pronouncing his name correctly. A n t h e i l Antale. I yeah. think. 
Um, and he'd been in the sort of, he'd been in Paris as well. Yes. Uh, he'd been in some very sort of fashionable circles in Paris. Um, hang, hung out with Igor Stravinsky, Eric Satie, these kind of people. Yeah. So very much in the sort of probably similar bohemian crowd to the one that maybe Heidi found herself with in the United States. Although from from what I've read about her, she didn't enjoy socializing a great deal. She was much more solitary and yeah. preferred small groups of people. But they they run into each other and then they... Um, they begin thinking about inventions. Correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They begin thinking about inventions, and um, yeah, because the yeah the story goes that she was um, she was very worried about. Obviously, you know, she was from Vienna, so she was very worried about everything that was going on in the, back in Europe at the time. And um, we were talking about World War Two by this point uh, when when she when she met George Antel. And um, about you know Nazism, about um, the, the the rise of it, and and everything. And she, the story goes that she said that she didn't feel good uh, making so much money and and having such an easy life back in the U.S. when when the world was in such big trouble. And and she remembered this is what I was saying before the, the conversation that she had overheard um, during the dinners um, at Fritz Mandel's home. Uh, about you know this these issues with ammunitions and these issues with uh, uh, with guidance of ammunition and and she thought that maybe one good way that she could um, serve help serving the country that she was at the time progressively adopting I mean she she didn't become American until later I think but she was she already wanted to be at that point so to help the U.S. Uh, effort at war she wanted to create an invention that could help the U.S. Navy I think yeah yeah this is this is where the work comes in with the torpedoes and and yeah. uh, her and um George Antale one, one of the things they were thinking about um was that they were quite uh perturbed and worried by the number of liners and ships that were being sunk by the German Navy at yeah. the time. Um, obviously, by that point in the war, the Battle of the Atlantic was raging. Yeah. Um, it was a lot of tonnage of Allied shipping was being sent to the bottom. And what they came up with was an idea um, to try and ensure that radio-controlled torpedoes couldn't be jammed. So, so the idea was that... Um, you would develop a kind of technology that would prevent anybody using like a hostile radio signal to jam mm. the radio link between a torpedo and the ship. Um, and what they did was, was truly revolutionary. Now, one of the interesting things before we, I suppose, get into the discussion of yeah. what they were doing was that um, at the time, from what I understand, the, the US Navy weren't using radio control for the torpedoes mm -hmm. um and one of the problems with radio control is that radio doesn't radio tends not to work very well underwater that was going to um, be my question yeah. yeah yeah um and and if if it does you need to to it will be only a, over a very short range yeah. or you need very very low frequencies which need extremely long antennas so it's not it's not the most practical technology but nevertheless what she did um um uh, and what george antile did as well the two of them together um, actually did change the world of communications. But the irony was it changed it a lot later. You yeah. know, it was um, like many inventions, you know, sometimes somebody comes up with something, yeah. but it will perhaps be a good few decades before or even longer yeah. before it's exploited. Um, so she, um, her and her um, friend George, they invented frequency hopping. 
Right. Which which is really cool. Now, would you and the other listeners like to know what frequency hopping is? <laughs> well, yes, Thomas, we very much would like to. <laughs> okay. I'm really pleased that you would because I've been looking forward to sharing this explanation <laughs> all week. So, Alex, here we go. Have you ever played the game of whack-a-mole? Yes, I have. Right. So, Alex has played whack-a-mole. I've played whack-a-mole. Some of our listeners may have played whack-a-mole, but for those of you at home who've never played whack-a-mole, <laughs> this is how the game works. And don't worry, there is a link to frequency hopping. So with whack-a-mole, as I remember, you have a, an area in front of you with, with, with lots of holes all the way across it, up and down, like a big, let's say, wooden rectangle or something. And up and down, you've got all these holes. And you start the game, and a, a mole pops up out of one of the holes. And you have a mallet, and you have to hit the the this mole just so everyone knows it's not a real mole it's a it's a puppet mole you hit the mole and then the mole will disappear and it pops up in a random way in another hole and you've got to try and hit it again and i think you get points for the number of times you successfully hit the mole and the whole point of this is that the mole is popping up in a random place you ne now you never know where it's going to quite appear next. And this really is how frequency hopping works. So if you've got two radios, you've got radio A and radio B, and you've got one frequency, let's say it's 100 megahertz, and they communicate with each other on this frequency, and that frequency never changes. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're listening, if you're within range of their transmitters, and you're listening to 100 megahertz, and their transmitters are powerful enough, you'll hear their conversation. Mm -hmm. and Correct. If you didn't like their conversation or if you just wanted to be mean, <laughs> you could get a very powerful 100 megahertz signal and transmit it in their direction and you would block out their ability to communicate. You right. jam them yeah. effectively. Now, the idea behind frequency hopping is that the frequency continually changes and it changes very rapidly in a pseudo-random sequence. So what, what that means is that to the observer, it appears to be random. But in reality, it, it, it isn't. Mm -hmm. And this is where the whack-a-mole analogy comes in. Because you never know where the frequency is going to be next. Yeah. So each... Now, modern systems will change frequency hundreds or thousands of times a second. But the idea is that... One at one moment it's on 101 megahertz, the next moment it's on 98 megahertz, the moment after that it's on 56 megahertz, whatever it might be. But it, it's constantly moving very rapidly between all of these different frequencies, and that makes it very, very hard to jam. Because mm -hmm. if you jammed the 56 megahertz frequency that I've I talked about just then, maybe you'll hit part of the signal for a very short time, yeah. But by then, the, the transmission's already moved to another yeah. frequency. It's moved back to 87 megahertz, whatever it is. And this is effectively what Heidi Lamar managed to do. And how they did it was, was ingenious because um, utilizing George's talents as a composer, right. they used a piano roll. Now, if you've ever, if you've ever seen a piano roll, um, you sometimes get, they, they used to have these things called pianolas. Yes. Which was, it's what, it's what the world had before Spotify or record players. <laughs> and a pianola was, you, you would load this sort of paper, like a large paper roll, yeah. into a, what looked like an upright piano. And then you'd activate it with a foot pedal and that would cause the, the roll to turn. 
Oh yeah. And the roll was 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 punctuated by lots of I think it was lots of perforations, and mm-hmm. each perforation corresponded to a note on the piano keyboard. Mm-hmm. So every time that perforation was hit, or, or whatever it would be, the note would sound. Right. And and this is how the piano roll would work. And uh, so on some of the pianos, you actually saw the piano keys moving as this thing was going around and so what they did was they invented a a, a means by which you would use a radio roll which would have so instead of that radio roll corresponding to piano keys it's corresponding to particular frequencies wow and you would have a matching sequence in the transmitter on the ship yep and the torpedo would have a matching sequence to receive the transmissions as well Mm -hmm. so unless you knew the sequence of the transmissions on that roll you would not be able to jam it because you would not know where the frequency is going next so that is effectively what they did um and it was ingenious yeah and so so this meant that when what, what they had in mind when they came up with that was that the u.s ship would be sending a torpedo to hit a german ship and this torpedo would have a, a set path, a set direction, and it would be communicating through this invention with the ship. And unless, as you said, unless the German ship would detect it and would know the sequence, there was no way they could jam it. Like they, they would see it coming, but that's it. They would see it coming. Yeah, that basically what would happen is you're absolutely right. If you imagine the two piano rolls start moving at the same time. Yeah. One in the ship that's sending the torpedo and the one in the torpedo. So the torpedo's launched, both piano rolls start moving. Yeah. And let's say they skip between all of these frequencies. Every time the frequency changes in the piano roll, the transmission frequency from the ship in the piano roll changes, the listening part of the radio if you like in the torpedo realizes right at that moment i've got to listen to whatever the frequency is to get the command yeah so they keep changing frequency the transmission and the reception frequencies change in in absolute coordination and concert with each other okay. and as you say unless you know the sequence that that's going to happen in and what frequencies they're going to be on you can't jam it yeah Wow, that's that's absolutely brilliant. But as you were saying, and I, I think I read this as well, and now let me know if, if you corroborate, but U.S. Navy did, chose not to, I mean, it got patented, but the U.S. Navy chose not to use it during World War II. It got used much later during the Cuban Missile Crisis, right? That's correct. Um, it was, in fact... Um, Geeky fact for you, it was US patent 2,292,387. <laughs> wow, that's mighty specific. There we go. <laughs> um, you're absolutely right. In fact, another fun fact, um, the piano roll idea had up to 88 frequencies right. that could be used, that the, the transmission could switch across. And it had 88 frequencies because that's the same number of keys on a piano. Uh-huh. So. On a standard piano, 88 keys. But you're absolutely right. Now, the Navy was quite lukewarm about it, apparently. Mm. Um, I think one of the ideas is that they they were not, to my knowledge, they were not using radio-controlled torpedoes at the time. And as we said earlier in the podcast, radio doesn't really like underwater very well. Mm. But indeed, 20 years later, the Cuban Missile Crisis breaks out. And um, 
frequency hopping is resurrected. And it's used as a way of encrypting the um, radio communications between Sono Boys and uh, the aircraft dropping them. Now, Alex is a veteran flyer <laughs> on board the Marine Nationale's Atlantique Maritime Patrol aircraft. You'll know all about Sono Boys, <laughs> I would imagine. Uh, sure, let's go with that. Um, <laughs> I mean, I can help our listeners very briefly by explaining that it's a anti-submarine warfare technique. So um, a plane, uh, a maritime patrol aircraft or helicopter, in fact, um, gets uh, gets noise of a possible submarine in a specific area, but the area is not very well defined. So what they do is they fly around generally where they think the submarine might be, and then they start dropping in a semi-random pattern. Here again, we have uh, this idea of patterns and semi-randomness, and we think it might be, but it might it, not really. It, it isn't really. Um, so they drop them in the water, and these... Um, these buoys are passive, if I remember correctly, and they listen in on possible sounds from the submarine if it is around. And then it, when they do get noise, when they do get something, they triangulate between different buoys the, the sound that they're getting so that they then are able to transmit to the um, helicopter or maritime patrol aircraft that is listening in where the submarine might actually be, given a more specific position. Have I done a good job at this? I think that's absolutely fantastic. I, <laughs> I learned something there as well. I've, I've always wondered <laughs> at what decision uh, or when in the submarine hunting process sonar boys are used. I've, I've always, because I know they have these magnetic anomaly detectors as well, these yes. aircraft. And so I've always wondered what, presumably that's to the, the, the MAD, as they call it, that gets the general idea where something might be happening. Yeah. And then the boys you use to like, okay, we're going to really try and zero in where these, where the bad guys might be. Yeah, correct. Um, well, with it, this thing with the frequency of him, when they were doing this, I think in the Cuban Missile Crisis, trying to find soviet submarines that would probably be looking for u.s navy ships um back in 62 the kennedy administration imposed a quarantine as they call it technically a naval blockade around cuba to stop the soviets sending any more ballistic missiles on to the island and to deploy them there so so, so from from what i understand submarines soviet submarines are very important to try and see what you know get get an idea of what the u.s mm. navy are up to and possibly mm. find a way through if they can maybe run the blockade and equally yeah. find potential targets if they need to fight their way through yeah and so these sonar boys that we used what i'd read was that the frequency hopping was employed to encrypt the data link for or the radio link if you like from the boy back to the aircraft because right. i guess one of the things that the soviets would have been very keen to do is work out where the boys are and try and jam the radio link because yeah. then that will help protect their their submarines. So it was a it was a long old time. It's twenty years. Um, I'm I'm relieved that Heidi did live to see her invention being used. I mean, she passed away in two thousand, I think it was. Um, so in her lifetime, I mean, it was good that um, you know, the technology was used. I mean, in in fact, to sort of fast forward to the present day. Um, it is completely now integral to military communications. Frequency hopping is is used. Um, it's standard and it's incredibly sophisticated now. Um, but but it wouldn't have been possible, I don't think, without the work that she'd done. 
and uh, George uh, and Taylor had done as well. Um, but the, interestingly, her her patents only came to light in 1997. I mean, I think the patent was secret. I've got a feeling the patent was secret during the war. I think it might have been, yeah. I mean, can you imagine this getting into the wrong hands? Yeah, yeah, that's true, isn't it? That 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 would have been devastating. Um particularly if if the if the enemy hadn't been as if they were using radio if they you know cracked away of not even for radio torpedoes but for other things that could have been very um detrimental to the allies yeah so it was yeah for 40 1997 when she gets recognition and apparently she um the the patent had expired by then but she she came up with some kind of financial settlement with a company called Wylan who I don't know much about, who I think are a, were possibly a big North American communications company right. to use to use that patent in some way or to give them some rights in some way. I'm not quite sure exactly what the arrangement was, but she got a large undisclosed sum from from them. But I think I I don't know a huge amount about her post-war life. I mean, did Alex did she stay involved with inventing? What happened to to that part of her life uh there's not much about her, that part of her life to be honest that i i didn't come across much either um i think she did i think she continued uh playing around trying to come up with new inventions uh, because i think she you know it, it was just who she was as we were saying at the beginning you know she started she was five when she started disassembling uh, music boxes to see what was going on there so i'm thinking yeah she did but um no, there's very little about her life after after the the, the World War uh, because she stopped acting as well. I mean, she did I think a total of twenty five movies, but you know, uh, Hollywood has, uh, especially back in the days, had a very set expiry date for uh, women actresses. So I think she just retired and um, enjoyed life and continued trying to invent new things. I think probably I can imagine her being a victim not only of the of the misogyny but the ageism of Hollywood at that time, and that, that sadly still probably continues in Tinseltown. Um, I, I was thinking that you were talking about her with the disassembling music boxes and these mechanical inventions. Um, it, it's people like her who you're desperate to have with you when you've got to put together IKEA furniture, isn't it? Because they have. I mean, I, I don't want to detract from from her amazing achievements with, with frequency hopping, but it's that ability of having. It's it's like people who can see who can think in three D. It's yeah. it's just a knack that some people have to be able to mechanically visualize things, yeah. uh, disassemble them, reassemble them, repair them, improve them, and and I just think it's it's one of those things some people are blessed with and and some people don't have. I certainly don't have it, um, but she, but she very clearly did. And one of the things that was was very, um, I think, quite moving about her story, but sadly she never saw this. But she eventually got inducted into the US National Inventors Hall of Fame. I mean this this was hugely hugely overdue. Yeah. But it did finally happen. Um and I think that I mean she it's interesting that during the war I was reading she had her own her own battles about trying to be allowed to innovate. I mean she'd approached I think the there was an organization which was like a sort of confederation of of US inventors and engineers mm-hmm. and she'd asked to join that. She was told to go out and try and help 
and encouraged people in the US to buy war bonds, which is the way that the US had of raising money for, for the war effort. And again, she was sort of cast into the, the, that role of, of a beautiful actress that she'd always had, and she was going to look glamorous on stage, and she'd, she'd um, offered to kiss this um, sailor in the audience who was always planted there if, if people were promised to buy more war bonds. So she always seems to be fighting this battle to be taken seriously as she, as she absolutely should have been. Um, as having an incredibly ingenuitive uh, mind and, and that ability um, to, to sort of look at the problems that uh, look at mechanical problems, engineering problems, and, and, and deal with those. But yet again, she's cast back into that. I need to be this. The, the people want her to be this beautiful Hollywood screen icon and all of that. And and the sad thing is, even now we're only just finding out about how important her work was, and it's. It, 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 it's as important, if not more important, than her work as an actress because it's something. And we don't, we're not just using frequency hopping for the military. Mm. I mean, we use it every day. We use it in our Wi Fi, we use it in our mobile phones. It's everywhere. Um, so she's made, a, she's made a huge role. And I'm, I'm just hugely pleased that you're redressing this on your podcast. And I'm, I'm hoping you mentioned very tantalizingly at the start of this discussion, you mentioned that this is the first in a series of women in World War II. So I'm hoping that we're going to get the chance to hear and learn about more very important women during the war and what they did. And not only during the war, but also their long-term legacy and impact. Yeah, I, I don't want to give off too much information. I like to keep the surprise. I like to keep mm -hmm. people on their oh, toes. Keep, keep us on the edge of our seats, please. <laughs> yes. Exactly. But uh, yeah, I mean... It's not really a secret because there have been a few TV series now about these things. Uh, but obviously, I would very much like to talk about Code Girls as well. Uh, so there will be an episode about this. Um, those women that were hired um, out of college or even out of just their, their family life um, to be able to break the, the secret codes and, and help allied efforts in World War II. So it's fascinating stories there as well. And you briefly mentioned again uh, before the, uh, the spy craft as well during World War II and establishing networks of, um, of resistance in France uh, back then. So yeah, there's, there's plenty to dig in. And, uh, and I believe you had also mentioned someone, uh, let's not spoil the fun here either, <laughs> but uh, I think you and I are also working on other episode uh, about a woman who greatly contributed uh, to, to, to the efforts as well with, uh, with important inventions. In, indeed. Well, I'm just going to put, I'm, I'm very selfishly going to plug one thing that I'm up to in, uh, in early April, on the 7th of April, I'll be giving a talk on a woman called Joan Curran, uh -huh. who um, may or may not be featured in a future podcast. Uh, but Joan um, was a British scientist who made a very big contribution to not only to electronic warfare, but the war as a whole and also to the Cold War era. But to learn more, you'll have to either attend the lecture online at the Royal Air Force Museum. You can find details on the RF Museum's website, 7th of April, or potentially tune in to some future episodes exactly well thank you so much tom as always it's been great fun having this conversation with you and uh, hopefully our listeners also learned more about frequency hopping and about hedy lamar uh who knows maybe we'll see a spike in uh movies from uh, the 1920s and 30s featuring hedy lamar uh in the next few um few weeks few days so again thank you so much for your time it's been an absolute pleasure and i can't wait for our next episode 
episode together. Alex, it's always a pleasure to catch up. I've thoroughly enjoyed it, as always, and we'll talk again soon. So there you have it, folks. Those of you who voted on LinkedIn to say that Hedy Lamar contributed to the World War II effort by selling bonds, entertaining troops, and innovating on electronic warfare were right. What a woman she was. And you'll be hearing more incredible stories about World War II women heroes here on the Defense Podcast very soon, I promise. But for the next episode, to be released on March 17th, we'll be diving back into sustainability and defense with another great guest. So don't forget to spread the word. And until then, au revoir et à bientôt.